How's that? That is entirely my fault. If I get close to microphones at all, it always does that. I'm sure something in my aura or something, I'm sure. But Brothers and sisters, it is so good to be with you today. Uh, we're going to be in John chapter 9. If you would take your Bibles and, and go there. If you're here as a guest and may not be familiar with uh, the scriptures, there may be someone close by who can help you find that, John chapter 9. It is a great, great joy for my wife and I to be with you today. Um, it is expected at a time like this that a preacher is going to say it is an honor to serve you. I wish there were another way I could say it. It is an honor to serve you. Uh, we, have, we have had a deep affection for this gathering uh, since its beginning. I have, have heard of your love for one another. We know of uh, your love for the nations. And uh, so it is a joy, a particular joy. Uh, to serve you today. Our church, I've received a number of notes today that they are praying for you today and they have an affection for you as well. Uh, many of you, I have heard your stories at uh, your baptism um, as updates come from your church leaders. And so uh, we feel a connection with you and are aware that we are a part of a very large family, aren't we? Uh, across the nations. And I hope it's appropriate to say uh, it is a special joy to worship in a church that I think more accurately reflects the beauty of the body of Christ, um, the global body of Christ, so many continents, so many nations of origin, so many different languages. Uh, many of the churches in the U.S., including the church that I serve, uh, long for and pray for what you enjoy every week, and uh, that prospect of worshiping across ethnicities. And uh, most of the people that I serve every week look a lot like me, which is kind of unfortunate, isn't it? I, I, maybe in a lot of ways that's unfortunate, but um, anyway, we've been given a little glimpse uh, here at Covenant Hope of something that I anticipate we will enjoy in glory, and so we look forward to that very much. So it's a joy to be with you. Uh, John chapter 9, we're going to be kind of looking at that little middle section of a very interesting story. So let me just give you a little bit of a understanding as to what the way this book, the Gospel of John, is structured. It is one of four Gospels that center on the person of Christ and his work. John has been called a passion narrative with a long introduction. So it's a story of Jesus, betrayal, crucifixion, death, and resurrection, and then a lengthy introduction before that. The book opens with an introduction, which I understand was preached just in the last few weeks here in John chapter 1. And then the section between the intro and Jesus' betrayal is what has been called the book of signs or the book of books of the miraculous works of God. And that is because kind of the focus of this section of the book center around seven miraculous works that Jesus did. All of them, I suspect for many of you, will be familiar. It begins with the changing of the water to wine in chapter 2 at Cana, the healing of the official son in John 4. The paralytic at Bethesda in John 5. The feeding of the multitude in the next chapter, chapter 6. Same chapter, Jesus walking on the water. And then this sign, the one we're going to be in in chapter 9, the healing of the man born blind. And then one more after that, the raising of Lazarus. But this gospel is not given just to tell us about some of the interesting things that Jesus can do. It is not just to amaze us by what he can do. It has a more specific intent, and the Bible tells us. In John chapter 20, uh, verses 30 and 31, that these signs were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the reason these are recorded is so that people like you and I would hear of Jesus, know him to be who he claims to be, and then that we would have life in him. That is the purpose of of these stories. So when we look at this story in John 9, we know that Jesus is showing mercy to this unnamed man born blind, but he is also showing mercy to us uh, because this was in, meant to point us to the Lord Jesus that we might find our life there. The concern is belief in Jesus, resting and trusting in Christ. Well, the first 12 verses of this chapter, chapter 9, I tell the story of this man's healing. He is the central figure in the story 
apart from the Lord Jesus, this man born blind. It's really an odd story, I think, if you're acquainted with it at all. The disciples open a discussion. When they see this man who cannot see, they ask the question, kind of a theological question, regarding the origin of suffering. What caused this to happen? This man who was born blind, did he sin? Did his parents sin? What caused that to happen? And Jesus said that his blindness was meant to display the works of God. And so that is the, was the purpose of it. And then this is really, really where it gets unusual and odd. A lot of speculation by Bible teachers as to why Jesus used this method to grant eyesight, but he spat on the ground and he took him and formed a little clay, applied it to the man's eyes, instructed him to go to the pool of Siloam and wash, and he came back with eyesight. Well, that is remarkable. It is remarkable as we consider it and we think about it now. And it confused his community so much so that the people even wondered, is this the same man that we saw begging? Because now I can see this is a man who evidently has eyesight. This cannot be the same man. Well, the focus then turns to Jesus as the one who performed the miracle, which is where we'll pick up our reading. Verse 13, John chapter 9, with that summary in place, let's start with the 13th verse, looking at the word of God now. The Bible says they, that is the puzzled townspeople, the community, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put up mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. The others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? There was a division among them, so that they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind, or excuse me, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So for the second time, they called on the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciples, and we are the disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he has opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never, since the beginning of the world, has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. They answered him, 
you were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? And they cast him out. Well, church, that's a remarkable story, isn't it? Just a fascinating account, not only of his healing, but also of the reaction to his healing. If this story were a one-act play, I think we'd all want to be that blind man, wouldn't we? We would want to play that part in this drama. He is such a compelling figure. Just, just terrific. His use of irony, his wit and sarcasm. He's a little bit sassy. He got a little bit salty in his attitude toward them. Perfectly willing to speak truth to power. And as Christians, we have a particular affection for this man. Uh, largely, and I think we're going to see this through our examination today of this section. We love this man because we kind of are this man. His story is our story. His miracle is the miracle that we, as believers, those who have turned in faith and repentance to Christ, we have experienced that. We love him because we are him. In fact, for the last 200 years, the church has employed his language as our own language. The other night, as we were waiting for the fireworks to start in your city, a group of us sang these words, I once was blind, but now I see. That is our testimony as those who have turned to Christ. Well, this all pivots on the question, what am I going to do with the person of Christ? Now, preachers are prone to overstatement. I acknowledge that. But I do think that this is an accurate statement. There is no more essential, pivotal, or consequential question in life than what in the world are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with the claims of Christ? Well, The most natural way to structure this section, I think, is to look at the heart disposition or the responses of each of the major players in this story. So if you omit the townspeople, Jesus does not even speak in this text at all. It is all the the dialogue between the Pharisees and the other players. So the three major characters are the Pharisees themselves, the parents of the blind man, and then the blind man. Those are the three that we have uh, in view. So we'll consider them based on their response to Jesus. So, Pharisees, parents, man born blind. And we will call them, for the sake of our uh, time here, the moralists, the fearful, and the simple man of faith. So if you're looking for kind of a structure or outline, that's just about it. You can put away your pen now if you would like. So the, the moralist, the fearful... And the simple man of faith. And each of these are responses to a miracle that really was staggered, really really an astonishing work of the Lord Jesus. These responses to authority are relevant to us all because it is a question we all must contend with. I was so served today to worship with you. I I don't know about this side. This side uh, really served me today as you were singing (laughs) and, uh, and centering our hearts and affections on these great themes uh, some of these themes were meant to be employed in song, so we appreciate those who served us. And we sang of the good news of the gospel again and again. It showed up in our singing today. But it is possible that that news could be spoken here. In fact, it is every time you gather, the gospel is spoken. But it is possible that this good news could be objectively good, but not personally good. That it could... It could be um, the difference between it being good and it being really, really good. I'll illustrate this way. In our country, one of the big multinational conglomerates is a group called Berkshire Hathaway, and they do a lot of investing around the world, probably in Dubai and probably other places, led by a very wealthy man named Warren Buffett. And I just read today in Barron's that they had a very, very good fourth quarter. They rallied really well and did extremely well. So those investors are very, very happy. Now, when I read that news, I would say that is good news, but it is not good news to me because I don't hold any shares in Berkshire Hathaway. Now, if I just shared with some of you, maybe you do. Well, congratulations. But uh, things are good for you. It is possible also that we could gather here and celebrate truths that are wonderful. But they're not really good to you if it has not been personally received. Uh, well, the man's uh, here was given his eyesight. And the reaction of the com- community here is kind of interesting. It's kind of a confusion, a little bit of indignance. 
because they take him directly to the Pharisees. Do you see that? Uh, Peterson's paraphrase says they marched the man to the Pharisees. You can kind of see him grabbing their garment and walking him in here. What are we going to do with this man? He can now see. And there's a key bit of information in verse 14 where it says, It was the Sabbath day when Jesus made mud and opened his eyes. Now, this would have been really problematic to the religious leaders of that day. It was the Sabbath day. Now, their problem was not what happened, but when it happened. It was the Sabbath. To the Pharisees, merciful acts were permitted on the Sabbath, on Saturday, but only when life was in danger. So there was this, uh, the rabbis had taken the fourth commandment and had given a, a, a lot of attention to particular ways that this could be violated. Making clay was expressly forbidden in the 39 traditional applications of the Sabbath. So they said making clay, something as simple as grinding or or filing metal, any kind of sorting, cattle, or even picking bones from fish, or throwing away bad berries if you were uh, eating strawberries. You couldn't, you couldn't sort. You just, they, even that was considered a violation of the fourth commandment. And so that is really what was in play here. He had made mud, applied it to the eyes of this man, and that they found to be problematic. Uh, this was not the fourth commandment. This was the rabbinic application of the fourth commandment, a really an expansion on the law, not the law of God. Jesus did not violate the law of God. By the way, to those of us in Christ, that is really good news. It is good news that he filled up all righteousness, that he did not transgress the law, because he, uh, in his holiness, in his obedience, filled up a credit of righteousness that would be applied to us. So it's very important that Jesus did not transgress the law of God. He did not violate the fourth commandment. He violated the tradition of the Pharisees, which was an expansion on the law. And we can safely assume that he did it intentionally. I don't think any of us think that Jesus lost track of what day it was, right? He, he knew this was Saturday. He knew what he was doing. And he knew that this would, in, in all likelihood, open a discussion, a necessary lesson. So the Pharisees asked the man how his sight was granted. Let me give you an idea of what we're going to do. We're just going to walk through the story, and then we're going to hit those three major points we did, again, by way of application at the end so you know that we are, where we are going. The Pharisees asked the man how his sight was granted. The man himself, the subject of the story, provides a quick summary of how that happened. You see that in verse 15. Jesus put mud on my eyes, I washed, and I see. Very simply. And immediately, a division forms among the Pharisees regarding Jesus' identity. Um, this morning, uh, Rita read for us from Isaiah's prophecy that uh, one of the marks of the promised one who would come would be that he would grant sight to those who are blind. So it was one of the things as they were looking for this promised one that he was going to be one who did this kind of miraculous deed. And so these two sides formed. Could this be? Could this not be the man from God? Uh, one side said this cannot be the man of God because he has no respect for the Sabbath. And the other said only a man of God could do what we see him doing. Well, the healed man concludes that he is a prophet. He, By the way, he doesn't have a particularly strong Christology, does he? He doesn't have a fully formed understanding of who Jesus is, yet he knows that he is from God. So that is as far as this man can confidently go at this point. Now, you'll have to read the rest of the chapter, Jesus' encounter with this man who he comes to full faith in Christ and rest in Christ. But at this point, he is very confident. This is no ordinary man. He gave me sight. I know that he must be from God. So that's his conclusion. The Pharisees conclude there's something not right, so he brings in his parents, his mom and dad, and they ask, and he asks them two, three questions. Is this your son? Was he born blind? And how is it that he sees? And you look at verse 20, their response. The, the parents answered, well, we, we know that this is our son. We know that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know. Let's just tap the brakes for just a moment. They now volunteer information that they were not asked. They disassociate with Jesus. 
We have no idea. We, we don't know who did it. They want to distance themselves from whoever this figure is that's causing such controversy. So, yes, he's our son. Yes, he was born blind. We see he can see now, but we don't know who did it. So don't look at us. So the teachers do just that. They, they, they say to him, look, he's a grown man. Don't talk to us. He's a grown man. Speak to him. So the Pharisees do that. They return to the man. They suggest that the man is lying. So they conclude, look, whatever he is uh, saying, uh, whatever the truth is, this cannot be it. And so they come a little stronger at this man with recently restored eyesight and say, look, give glory to God. If you remember your Old Testament, you may remember these were the same words that Joshua spoke to Achan in his sin. When he confronted him with his sin, he said, give glory to God. We know that this man is... A sinner, and I love this little shift in uh, the narrative here. It's so great. They said, "Look, we know that this man, speaking of Jesus, is a sinner. Trust this. Look, 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 look. We are the leaders. Trust us. We are the knowers." His response in verse 25 is beautiful. Oh, so, well, so you know this? Well. Let me tell you what I know. I know my eyes didn't work. I know that I was blind and that I can now see. And you would say at that point, in, in our country, we, we would say, this, I think this is an idiom that might work here. When, when you want to display immediate triumph, this is what they call a mic drop when you just, I'm, I'm, done, I'm done with this. They, well, like, obviously, look, I don't know what you know. I know what I know. I know that I couldn't see. My eyesight was restored. The Pharisees answer the man by asking him to go over it again. And so he says, what did he do to you? How did he open his, your eyes? And the man exhibits in verse 27 a little impatience. By the way, I would too, wouldn't you? I think at this point I would be a little exasperated with this, partially because he now has sight. I mean, this is a man who has eyesight. If I were in his shoes... I would want to test drive my new eyes. I want to walk through the city. I mean, they were. The, this was the, this was the, the feast of booths, right? This was the time when all these colorful tents all over the roofs and in the alleyways and lots of music and a lot of food. And I'm sure he did not want to spend his time speaking to this group of religious leaders. So a little impatient. Verse 27. He says, "I have told you already, and you would not listen." Why do you want to hear it again? And then he kind of turns it on them, a little aggressive, maybe a little uh, antagonism here. He said, well, look, are you, do you want to be his disciples? Asking this of the Pharisees. A very, very strong, unrattled man at this place. So the Pharisees respond in verse 28. You follow this man. Well, we follow Moses. And we don't even know who this man is. And the man does not back down at all. He comes at them again with even more aggression. And he's saying, look, hang on. You're, there is a man in Jerusalem restoring eyesight, and you don't know who he is. You're the, you're the gatekeepers of truth, and there is a man here doing what I observed him to do, and you don't even know him. He then helps him. He preaches a four-point sermon. Do you see this? Uh, four, four points. Number one. God does not listen to sinners. Number two, God does, however, listen to worshipers and those who do his will. Number three, this has never happened before. What, what happened here is unprecedented. And number four, only a man of God can do what he has done. By the way, that's some pretty ironclad reasoning there, isn't it? I mean, the logic there is pretty strong. Well, the Pharisees responded, all right, then, not only is he a sinner, you're a sinner. By the way, this may be the only thing they said that was true, right? We would have to acknowledge this, and the man himself would have to acknowledge this. Yes, I am a sinner. If we went back to the question that was asked way back at the beginning of the, of the, of the um, chapter, 
and ask the question, did sin cause this? Now, the disciples were interested in a little more specific question. Is it this man's sin or his parents' sin that caused his blindness? And the conclusion is there is not a one-to-one correlation between this man's sin or his parents' sin and blindness. But if I were to ask you the question, did sin cause this? Well, yes. Sin causes blindness. Not only blindness, Adam's sin, his his first father, uh, Adam's sin caused blindness, and it caused far more catastrophic damage. Relational strife in marriage and fatigue in labor and sorrow and pain. Sin caused this. Those burdens that we carry, the weariness that we carry in our bodies, which may be very different than his struggle, but nonetheless real. By the way, church, that will not always be the case, right? We, we sang of today. We sang of a day when sickness, sorrow, pain, and death are felt and feared. No more. It's a great promise, a great assurance that we have. Um, we read this morning of that the reality of the fall, the great rippling effect out of the one man's sin, one man's defiance, and the impact that it had. And I think the unifying theme from Genesis 3 all the way through, and I think you're going to revisit this uh, in coming weeks, is how Jesus intends to restore to us all that was stripped away at Eden. Well, this is probably the only thing that the, the Pharisees got right. Was this man a sinner from birth? Yes, he is. And so were they, and so are we. And the gospel frees us. This is good news for all of us. If, if your inclination is to veil or to keep hidden your sin, the gospel frees us to make some really honest admissions about our own sin and ourselves. It is true. We are sinners. We are sinners by nature. We are sinners by choice. And it is and abide under the just wrath of God. By the way, that sets the stage, as your pastor said earlier, for the good news of the gospel, that we are born not only unwilling, but unable. we got a problem we can't fix. We are born with this fixed disposition against God and his rule. So, we understand that. By the way, if um, the language that I'm sure you are familiar with, we, we call it the solas, we, on the basis of scriptural authority alone, we are, based, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and to the glory of God alone. And we would want it no other way. If like I, The way I say it to our church is this. If I, if I am partially responsible for my salvation, then I get partial glory. If God is partially responsible for my salvation, then he gets partial glory. If he is mostly responsible for my salvation, then he gets most of the glory. But if God is completely responsible, if he took a man who was blind, dead in his sins, if he is completely responsible for my salvation, then he gets all the glory. We have a problem we cannot fix. And that is the, the, the story that we resonate so closely to those of us who are in Christ. Well, again, if you read the remainder of the chapter, we see uh, that Jesus will find him. They throw him out of the temple, and Jesus pursues him, finds him, engages him. And he becomes a worshiper. Really a sweet story. So, I mean, it's almost as if this bold man is saying, look, throw me out of the temple. Jesus will find me there. And he did. And, um, and so, let's return again. Make a few points of application. Bear down on uh, some um, important points. And then we'll close out our time together. Returning to the three figures in the story. The Pharisees, the parents, the simple man of faith. Having given a summary now of the story, let's look at them individually. First, the moralist, the Pharisees. The moralist. You know what I mean by that? A moralist, you may be more familiar with the term legalist. Uh, it is those who uh, feel quite sure that they can uh, answer the demands of God's justice through right living, through, through holy living, through adherence to a code. So, these Pharisees, I think it's noteworthy as you kind of look at the whole story, in addition to the fact that they had distorted the law of God, 
I think there are two things that stand out about these moralists, and they are just cold. I mean, these were just cold figures in the story. One was their indifference toward people, um, particularly suffering people. I mean, that, isn't that evident? And this is a man who had suffered his entire life. Um, he had been shown mercy. And that almost seems to be not even a consideration in their mind. There, there is particular interest in the day on which you, you look, you can do this. Don't do it on Saturday. The second is the hardness of their hearts. These are, just, these are people who are just calloused in their disposition. Uh, yesterday when we were talking about it, uh, one of your pastors, Mark, uh, pointed out the irony that, that really it is these leaders who were blind. Isn't that true? They were, the, they were just, their, their minds and hearts were just veiled from the identity of Jesus. They were the blind ones. But I think we do see here an indifference toward people. It seems that their one priority was their own prominence and power. There's something I think really obvious that is omitted in this, and that is the joy of the man in question. Almost to them, he wasn't a man. He was an object lesson. This is just a, a, someone we can use to make a theological point about the origin of sin or whatever it is. As someone whose condition raised an interesting theological debate. Did this man sin in utero or did his parents sin? Who sinned? And now his eyes work and the problem is not so much the miracle but that it happened on a Saturday. So now he's the center of this debate over the legitimacy of the rabbinic expansion on the Old Testament code. You can't do that on Saturday. And I think all of us would look in on this story and say, yes, 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 yes. But he can see now. He was blind, and now his eyes are open. He can see color. He can see distance. He can see people. I mean, it's almost as if that is completely disregarded in this. By the way, that is the lunacy that is legalism, isn't it? Just this, uh, this preoccupation with the code and a coolness toward the heart of the Lord Jesus. Well, verse 18, the Jews, I thought this is very interesting, did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until, that word until, tells me there was a point when they did realize, yes, this man, this is a man whose eyesight was restored. So there was a point where they had to acknowledge, okay, this actually did happen, yet they remain unmoved by this, this fact. So as believers, I think this, this is an ancillary point. This would be a, a, a parenthetical point. But as believers, I think if we're going to reflect the heart of the Lord Jesus, we're going to have to note when people are suffering. And so I, I have heard of your love for one another, and I commend you for that. That is, one of, that, that is the heart of uh, walking as believers. Some of you may even have friends who are blind, family members who are blind. Such courage, in many cases, and, and perseverance that are shown there. But this is a particularly limiting affliction, isn't it? To, be, to, be, to, to not have eyesight. I think a particularly pitiable condition. You need help dressing. You need help grooming. Avoiding injury means you have to use a cane, particularly in public places. Reliant on drivers and helpers. Can only imagine the sights that we see all the time. The sights of color, depth, perception, flowers, smile, sunrise. All of that completely missed by those with this affliction. But that's this kind of externalism, the rigid, adhered, uh, structured adherence to a code has no context for that kind of affection for, for people. So we, we see that, note it, and, um, and want to be changed by it. But I think in this place, these people had little concern for grace, new birth, a transformed life. life. Just show me your Saturday morning to-do list because my concern is that you stay within the bounds. That is a very common approach to religion. The impulse, this is, by, by the way, this is wide scale, and it is not unique to distorted Christianity. It's probably the case in many religions. The impulse to build your acceptance before God around what you do and don't do. 
that there is this suspicion that if I can just get it right, if I can just toe the line, if I can just stay within the boundary markers, tell me what to do, tell me how to dress, tell me when to work, show me the rules and I'll do them. I think that lure is understandable, but there is no life there. The good news of the gospel is this. is not... Jesus did not come to load up your backpack. Jesus took the backpack. Jesus took the load. He carried the burden of righteousness that should have. In fact, in fact I think this, this mindset, the, the mindset that says, if I can just toe the line, if I can be rigid and careful and circumspect in my Sabbath keeping, or if I am careful to tithe and if I'm careful in attendance and all of these things that we tend to attach merit to, that discounts the greatness of our need, isn't it? That's to discount the holiness of God and the great debt that is ours. The, the, the kind of thinking that would say, okay, you cover the debt of my sin, lift all that is over, over me, and in response, I'll give you one dollar out of every ten I make. You can, you can see the lunacy of that, right? That is the, the ethic that a debtor would hold. Sam Alberry said, Jesus did not come to reward good people, but to save bad people. And that is good news for bad people like us. Well, that's the moralist. Now the fearful. I, and you see this in the parents. I thought this is noteworthy in this text. I, I think we would expect more from uh, parents. Um, I think the one thing sadder than being born blind would be to have a child who's born blind, wouldn't you? That would be a, a different level of sorrow. So we might reasonably assume that the two people who valued this man's eyesight more than him would be his mother and his father. Yet when they are confronted with this, the fear that rose in them caused them to disassociate with Jesus. I think it was really evident in our text that they, the, a pulling back from who... Jesus was. They stood to lose something that was, to them at least, too valuable to forfeit. And in this case, it was inclusion in the community. Did you see that? It had already been established. It had already been said. If you follow Jesus, you will be put out of the synagogue. You'll be kicked out. Which in that culture would have been a terrible shame. It, was to, it would be put to put you out of civil society. And these parents, recognizing this, they volunteered the information. Look, we acknowledge he's our son. We acknowledge that he was blind. We acknowledge that he can now see. But we have no idea who did it. We have nothing to do with him. Uh, keep us out of that discussion. Talk to he, him. He's a grown man. I'm sure that there are some here who have experienced some kind of cutting off from your community when you began to follow Jesus. But we are reminded, we see that such assurances in the gospel that this will all be filled up in Christ. I mean, you know, you know, a hundred years from now, it's all light and momentary, isn't it? A hundred years from now, whatever we think we are forfeiting, whatever uh, exclusion from the community we might know, it is all filled up in the presence Christ. We prayed it together as our brothers and sisters led us today. Together we prayed it with engaged hearts, I trust. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise, thou my inheritance. Now and always, thou and thou only, first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. That is the joy of our hearts. Not inclusion in the community, not fearing being put out. It is what we gain in Christ. Well, we see here, I think, the early signs of this kind of heart in our third subject, the simple man of faith, where he gives witness to the uniqueness of Christ. And we mentioned he... He didn't have a fully formed theology of who Christ was, right? He, he said, I, I think he's from, I'm confident that he's from God. Uh, he, he was a witness, but he was not an expert witness, right? He, you know, I, I can't say whether he's a sinner, a sinner or not. I can tell you my eyes now work, and only a man from God could 
do that, only later in the chapter, once he's been thrown out, does Jesus find him, calls him to belief and submission. But I think we do see here some of the early signs of faith. An evident confidence, a greater confidence in Jesus than in the structures that would have been familiar to him in Jerusalem. So I think we see in here a kind of simplicity. I think it's so evident in the way he communicated about him. No real engaging on the question of who is he a sinner or his identity, but rather I can say what I have experienced in him. And I have confidence in him that I do not have in the other structures of religion. Just a simple rest. Central to, we mentioned in John chapter 20, verse 30, that these signs were given so that we would know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we might have life through his name. These miracles were meant so that we would see Jesus as unique and then come to rest our hopes and confidences in him. To follow Jesus is to live a life of trust, just resting in his enoughness, resting in his perfection. Full reliance on him in every area. Reliance on him for righteousness, for peace, for identity, for acceptance. It is resting and leaning into Christ for all that we need, rather than hoping to fill up our righteousness through ethical living like the Pharisees. It is not having a righteousness of our own, but the righteousness that comes by faith. So, and by the way, the first application, I think, of this might be to those who are here who are outside of Christ, who have never trusted Christ. The call to you would be to come to him, and it is in his heart to receive sinners, to, to rest and receive sinners. The first application would be to them, but I think the application is a little broader than that. Um, Romans chapter 1, verse 17, Galatians 3.11, Hebrews 10.38, all say the same thing. The just shall live by faith. The, the justified man or woman escapes death by faith. That is central to, that's what we said a moment ago, the sola fide. We are, on the basis of scriptural authority alone, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. So faith is not something we exercised at the point of our conversion, and now we go straight effort. We do give effort, real effort, but... We repented, but as Luther taught us in the 95 Thesis, we become repenters, right? We, we, we become, that becomes the pattern of our life. We repented, we believed, yet we become believers. That's what we would call one another. We are ongoing in our faith and repentance. The justified one escapes death, lives by faith. Paul would tell us in Colossians 2.6, As you have received Christ Jesus as Lord. How did you receive Christ Jesus as Lord? By faith, by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. As you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. So how do I walk? By grace, through faith. We become believers. That is how we navigate a new year. It is by faith, resting every day, relying, leaning in, trusting the Lord Jesus. I think the contrast between particularly the first and the third of our groups, the Pharisees and the simple man of faith, is I think fairly evident. One man is quite sure that his law keeping will keep him safe. That whatever righteousness is needed, he is quite sure that he can provide. Hold that over. A man or woman who is fixed on Jesus and is trusting him. One lives in wonder at the grace that they've been shown. One is quite sure that they can secure whatever righteousness they need. If the simple man or woman of faith has received mercy, they're quite sure of it. So I say again, we, we love this man because we are this man. We were blind. And by grace we now see. So as we close out our time, can I take just a moment and just lay out the gospel? It is not explicit in our text, but it is central to our hope. The gospel does not begin with man's need. It begins with a God who has no needs. 
God who is, the Westminster says, a spirit who is being wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth are infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. A God who existed eternally before time in blazing, incandescent glory. This God exists in three persons, eternally exists, as a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one. Can't explain it to you, believe it with all my heart. Three in one. Uh, he displayed his glory in creation. I think we're going to briefly revisit that next week, Lord willing. Uh, he, he displayed his glory in all that is seen in the created order, in constellations and rivers and oceans and wildlife and plant life and birds and babies and flowers in the wide, expansive desert right outside your city. His glory, however, was particularly shown in image bearers like you and I, those who were made to bear the image of of God. Yet these image bearers, our first father, Adam and Eve, these Im image bearers defied his just rule. This is at the center of the gospel. Speaking for all of us, as our representative, they defied God's just rule. He said no, and they said yes. And this rebellion is catastrophic in that it introduced suffering like blindness and all kinds of other afflictions. It introduced suffering and death into God's creation, and we are all affected. In Adam, all die. We enter life under the sentence of death. Our every inclination is in opposition to God. We have a need that we can't fix. we got a problem that we can't remedy. We are neither willing nor able to fix our problem. Yet God answers this. By becoming a man, it's what we've celebrated over the last month and a half. God answers this by becoming a man in the person of his son, fulfilling with precision all the demands of God's law. And in his sinless life, he accumulated a credit of righteousness for his people. And in his death, his sacrificial, voluntary, atoning death, he came in under the cumulative weight of of all the sins of his people and bore the full weight of that, the justified fury of a God who is holy and thereby incensed by the sins of his people, of all people, bearing in his blameless body the guilt of our sin. He was, Romans 4.25, delivered over to death for our sins, yet raised for our justification. So in Jesus' resurrection, the judicial standing of an entire race of people, when Jesus came to life, the, the judicial standing of an entire people pivoted in that moment. He was raised for our justification. That judicial pronouncement, when the gavel falls and we are cleared forever of the guilt of our sin. We are called to come to him, awaken to our need, turning from our sin, finding our rest in him. And his covenant love, his steadfast, oath-bound covenant love for his people is enduring. It will never end. It will not change tomorrow. It will not change next year. And his people are never outside his care. It was already alluded to in this service. He has filled up the deepest longings of man's heart as being found and fully met. In him. And it all ends, as we sang today, in his presence where there is fullness of joy. For he, 1 Peter 3 18, for Christ suffered once the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And here's the thing, church all of that, all of that glory, we were blind to. You didn't see it, and neither did I. We were blind to it. Paul said the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, Paul said, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as his servants for your sake. For the very same God who said, let light shine out of darkness, we'll see next week, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God 
in the face of Jesus Christ. So why do we love this story? Because this story is our story. Whereas we could not see, he has given us sight. The question then comes to all of us, what will we do with the claims of Christ? What will we do? Will we, like the Pharisees, insist on paying our own way through rigid adherence to a code, through ethical living? Or will we, like the parents, see the largeness of the cost the potential for relational harm and loss, exclusion from the community, and conclude that the cost is too great? Or will we, like this man, the simple man of faith, set our hearts on the merciful Christ who receives sinners? For me, my desire, give me the heart of that man that would move toward Christ. And we encourage every move toward Christ. Marginalized by his community, treated like a topic of discussion rather than a man, bullied by the religious people, left hanging by his mother and father. Yet his heart focus remains Jesus. Christ who abounds in steadfast love, who pities the broken, and who receives sinners like us. It is that heart that says, throw us out of the temple. For Jesus will find us there. So I hold you before you that question. What will you do with Jesus? So Father, we now turn to you um, for all that we need. We know that the deepest needs of our heart we have concluded are very clearly we cannot fix. Um, you know, we see the adequacy of your work. Uh, we rest in the adequacy of your work. Father, we reflect on our own condition from birth. We have transgressed the law of God, having inherited it from our own parents. We see the rightness of hell. We see the justness of, um, of judgment. Yet we see the great mercy of Christ. And so we thank you that you have mercifully brought us out of darkness and into light. So, Father, would you uh, grant to those who are in Christ fresh apprehension of this truth, uh, fresh enjoyment of this truth, fresh delight in this truth. And, Father, for those who are bent toward works or are troubled by fear, would you give the gift of faith today? Would you magnify yourself in that way? And we do pray it in that name. Name that is above every name. Amen.